0: Chapter eleven, Part two of the Life of Cicero Volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero Volume one by Anthony Trollope. Chapter eleven. The Triumvirate, Part two. SIDE Note BC fifty nine, Iat. forty eight. The year following was that of Caesar's first consulship, which he held in conjunction with Bibulus, a man who was altogether opposed to him in thought, in character, and in action. So hostile were these two great officers to each other, that the one attempted to undo whatever the other did. Bibulus was elected by bribery on behalf of the senate, in order that he might be a counterpoise to Caesar. But Caesar now was not only Caesar he was Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus united, with all their dependents, all their clients, all their greedy hangers-on. To give this compact something of the strength of family union, Pompey, who was now nearly fifty years of age, took in marriage Caesar's daughter Julia, who was a quarter of a century his junior. But Pompey was a man who could endear himself to women, and the opinion seems to be general that, had not Julia died in childbirth, the friendship between the men would have been more lasting. But for Caesar's purposes the duration of this year and the next was enough. Bibulus was a laughing-stock, the mere shadow of a consul when opposed to such an enemy. He tried to use all the old forms of the Republic with the object of stopping Caesar in his career, but Caesar only ridiculed him, and Pompey, though we can imagine that he did not laugh much, did as Caesar would have him was an augur and observed the heavens when political manoeuvres were going on which he wished to stop this was the old roman system for using religion as a drag upon progressive movements no work of state could be carried on if the heavens were declared to be unpropitious and an augur could always say that the heavens were unpropitious if he pleased this was the recognised constitutional mode of obstruction and was quite in accord with the feelings of the people Pompey alone, or Crassus with him, would certainly have submitted to an augur. But Caesar was above augurs. Whatever he chose to have carried, he carried, with what approach he could to constitutional usage, but with whatever departure from constitutional usage he found to be necessary. What was the condition of the people of Rome at that time, it is difficult to learn from the conflicting statements of historians. That Cicero had till lately been popular, we know. We are told that bibulus was popular when he opposed caesar of personal popularity up to this time i doubt whether caesar had achieved much yet we learn that when bibulus with cato and lucullus endeavoured to carry out their constitutional threats they were dragged and knocked about and one of them nearly killed of the illegality of caesar's proceedings there can be no doubt the tribunician veto was interposed Caesar contented himself with disregarding it. This is quoted from the German historian, who intends to leave an impression that Caesar was great and wise in all that he did, and who tells us also of the obstinate weak creature Bibulus, and of the dogmatical fool Cato. I doubt whether there was anything of true popular ferment, or that there was any commotion except that which was made by the roughs who had attached themselves for pay to Caesar or to Pompey or to Crassus, or as it might be to bibulus and the other leaders the violence did not amount to more than nearly killing this man or the other some roman street fights were no doubt more bloody as for instance that in which seven years afterwards clodius was slaughtered by milo but the blood was made to flow not by the people but by hired bravos the roman citizens of the day were i think very quiescent neither pride nor misery stirred them much. Caesar, perceiving this, was aware that he might disregard Bibulus and his auguries, so long as he had a band of ruffians about him sufficient for the purposes of the hour. It was in order that he might thus prevail that the coalition had been made with Pompey and Crassus. His colleague Bibulus, seeing how matters were going, retired to his own house, and there went through a farce of consular enactments. Caesar carried all his purposes— and the people were content to laugh, dividing him into two personages, and talking of Julius and Caesar as the two consuls of the year. It was in this way that he procured, to be allotted to him by the people, his irregular command in Gaul. He was to be proconsul not for one year, with perhaps a prolongation for two or three, but for an established period of five. He was to have the great province of Cisalpine Gaul, that is to say the whole of what we now call Italy, from the foot of the Alps down to a line running from sea to sea just north of Florence. To this Transalpine Gaul was afterward added. The province so named, possessed at that time by the Romans, was called Narbonensis, a country comparatively insignificant, running from the Alps to the Pyrenees along the Mediterranean. The Gaul or Gallia of which Caesar speaks when, in the opening words of his commentary, he tells us that it was divided into three parts, was altogether beyond the Roman province which was assigned to him. Caesar, when he undertook his government, can hardly have dreamed of subjecting to Roman rule the vast territories which were then known as Gallia, beyond the frontiers of the empire, and which we now call France. But he caused himself to be supported by an enormous army, there were stationed three legions on the Italian side of the Alps, and one on the other. These were all to be under his command for five years certain, and amounted to a force of not less than thirty thousand men. As no troops could constitutionally be stationed in Italy proper, the commander of the legions of northern Italy and Gaul, says Mommsen, dominated at the same time Italy and Rome for the next five years, and he who was master for five years was master for life. Side note, B.C. 59, A.T. 48. Such was the condition of Rome during the second year of the Triumvirate, in which Caesar was consul, and prepared the way for the powers which he afterward exercised. Cicero would not come to his call, and therefore, as we are told, Clodius was let loose upon him. As he would not come to Caesar's call, it was necessary that he should be suppressed, and Clodius, notwithstanding all constitutional difficulties, nay impossibilities, was made tribune of the people. Things had now so far advanced with the Caesar that a Cicero who would not come to his call must be disposed of after some fashion. Till we have thought much of it, often of it, till we have looked thoroughly into it, we find ourselves tempted to marvel at Cicero's blindness. Surely a man so gifted must have known enough of the State of Rome to have been aware that there was no room left for one honest, patriotic, constitutional politician. Was it not plain to him that if, natus ad justitiam, he could not bring himself to serve with those who were intent on discarding the Republic, he had better retire among his books, his busts, and his literary luxuries, and leave the government of the country to those who understood its people?' and we are the more prone to say and think all this because the man himself continually said it and continually thought it in one of the letters written early in the year to atticus from his villa at antium he declares very plainly how it is with him and this too in a letter written in good humour not in a despondent frame of mind in which he is able pleasantly to ridicule his enemy clodius who it seems had expressed a wish to go on an embassy to tigranes king of armenia Do not think, he says, that I am complaining of all this because I myself am desirous of being engaged in public affairs. Even while it was mine to sit at the helm, I was tired of the work. But now, when I am in truth driven out of the ship, when the rudder has not been thrown down but seized out of my hands, how should I take a pleasure in looking from the shore at the wrecks which these other pilots have made?' but the study of human nature tells us and all experience that men are unable to fathom their own desires and fail to govern themselves by the wisdom which is at their fingers ends the retiring prime minister cannot but hanker after the seals and the ribbons and the titles of office even though his soul be able to rise above considerations of emolument and there will creep into a man's mind an idea that though reform of abuses from other sources may be impossible if he were there once more the evil could at least be mitigated might possibly be cured so it was during this period of his life with cicero he did believe that political justice exercised by himself with such assistance as his eloquence would obtain for it might be efficacious for preserving the republic in spite of caesar and of pompey and of crassus he did not yet believe that these men would consent to such an outrage as his banishment it must have been incredible to him that Pompey should assent to it. When the blow came, it crushed him for the time. But he re-tricked his beams, and struggled on to the end, as we shall see if we follow his life to the close. Such was the intended purpose of the degradation of Clodius. This, however, was not at once declared. It was said that Clodius as tribune intended rather to oppose Caesar than to assist him he at any rate chose that cicero should so believe and sent curio a young man to whom cicero was attached to visit the orator at his villa at antium and to declare these friendly purposes according to the story told by cicero clodius was prepared to oppose the triumvirate and the other young men of rome the jeunesse d'ore of which both curio and clodius were members were said to be equally hostile to caesar pompey and crassus whose doings in opposition to the constitution were already evident enough so that it suited cicero to believe that the rising aristocracy of rome would oppose them but the aristocracy of rome whether old or young cared for nothing but its fish-ponds and its amusements cicero spent the earlier part of the year out of rome among his various villas at tusculanum at antium and at Formiae. the purport of all his letters at this period is the same to complain of the condition of the republic and especially of the treachery of his friend pompey though there be much of despondency in his tone there is enough also of high spirit to make us feel that his literary aspirations are not out of place though mingled with his political wailing the time will soon come when his trust even in literature will fail him for a while early in the year he declares that he would like to accept a mission to egypt offered to him by caesar and pompey partly in order that he might for a while be quit of rome and partly that romans might feel how ill they could do without him he then uses for the first time as far as i am aware a line from the iliad which is repeated by him again and again in part or in whole to signify the restraint which is placed on him by his own high character among his fellow-citizens i would go to egypt on this pleasant excursion but that i fear what the men of troy and the trojan women with their wide sweeping robes would say of me and what he asks would the men of our party the optimates say and what would cato say whose opinion is more to me than that of them all and how would history tell the story in future ages but he would like to go to egypt and he will wait and see then after various questions to atticus "'comes that great one as to the augurship, "'of which so much has been made by Cicero's enemies. "'Quo quidem uno ego abistis capi possim.' "'A few lines above he had been speaking of another lure, "'that of the mission to Egypt. "'He discusses that with his friend, "'and then goes on in his half-joking phrase, "'But this would have been the real thing to catch me.' "'Nothing caught him.' he was steadfast all through, accepting no offer of place from the conspirators by which his integrity or his honour could be soiled. That it was so was well known to history in the time of Quintilian, whose testimony as to the repudiatus vigintiviratus, his refusal of a place among the twenty commissioners, has already been quoted. And yet biographers have written of him as of one willing to sell his honour, his opinions, and the commonwealth, for a pitiful bribe, Not that he did do so, not that he attempted to do it, but because in a half-joking letter to the friend of his bosom he tells his friend which way his tastes lay. He had been thinking of writing a book on geography, and consulted Atticus on the subject, but in one of his letters he tells his friend that he had abandoned the idea. The subject was too dull, and if he took one side in a dispute that was existing, he would be sure to fall under the lash of the critics on the other.' "'He is enjoying his leisure at Antium, and thinks it a much better place than Rome. "'If the weather will not let him catch fish, at any rate, he can count the waves. "'In all these letters, Cicero asks questions about his money and his private affairs, "'about the mending of a wall, perhaps, and adds something about his wife or daughter or son. "'He is going from Antium to Formiae, but must return to Antium by a certain date, "'because Tullia wants to see the games.' then again he alludes to Clodius. Pompey had made a compact with Clodius, so at least Cicero had heard, that he, Clodius, if elected for the tribunate, would do nothing to injure Cicero. The assurance of such a compact had no doubt been spread about for the quieting of Cicero. But no such compact had been intended to be kept, unless Cicero would be amenable, would take some of the good things offered to him, or at any rate hold his peace." but Cicero affects to hope that no such agreement may be kept. He is always nicknaming Pompey, who during his Eastern campaign had taken Jerusalem, and who now parodies the Africanus, the Asiaticus, and the Macedonicus of the Scipios and Metelluses. If that Hierosolimarian candidate for popularity does not keep his word with me, I shall be delighted. If that be his return for my speeches on his behalf— the antepernatur omnibus pompeius for instance i will play him such a turn of another kind that he shall remember it he begins to know what the triumvirate is doing with the republic but has not yet brought himself to suspect the blow that is to fall on himself they are going along very gaily he says and did not make as much noise as one would have expected if cato had been more on the alert things would not have gone so quickly but the dishonesty of others who have allowed all the laws to be ignored has been worse than cato if we used to feel that the senate took too much on itself what shall we say when that power has been transferred not to the people but to three utterly unscrupulous men they can make whom they will consuls whom they will tribunes so that they may hide the very goiter of Vatinius under a priest's robe For himself cicero says he will be contented to remain with his books if only clodius will allow him if not he will defend himself as for his country he has done more for his country than has even been desired of him and he thinks it to be better to leave the helm in the hands of pilots however incompetent than himself to steer when passengers are so thankless then we find that he robs poor tullia of her promised pleasure at the games "'because it will be beneath his dignity to appear at them. "'He is always very anxious for his friend's letters, "'depending on them for news and for amusement. "'My messenger will return at once,' he says in one. "'Therefore, though you are coming yourself very soon, "'send me a heavy letter, full not only of news, "'but of your own ideas.' "'In another, Cicero the Little sends greeting,' he says in Greek, "'to Titus the Athenian, that is, to Titus Pomponius Atticus.' the Greek letters were probably traced by the child at his father's knee, as Cicero held the pen of the stylus. In another letter he declares that there, at Formiae, Pompey's name of Magnus is no more esteemed than that of Dives belonging to Crassus. In the next he calls Pompey sampsigeramus We learn from Josephus that there was a lady afterward in the east, in the time of Vitellius, who was daughter of sampsigeramus king of the Amici, it may probably be a royal family name. In choosing the absurd title, he is again laughing at his party leader. Pompey had probably boasted of his doings with the Samsiciramis of the day and the priests of Jerusalem. When this Samsiciramis of ours finds how ill he has spoken of, he will rush headlong into revolution. He complains that he can do nothing at Formiae because of the visitors, no english poet was ever so interviewed by american admirers they came at all hours in numbers sufficient to fill a temple let alone a gentleman's house how can he write anything requiring leisure in such a condition as this nevertheless he will attempt something he goes on criticising all that is done in rome especially what is done by pompey who no doubt was vacillating sadly between caesar to whom he was bound and bibulus the other consul to whom he ought to have been bound as being naturally on the aristocratic side, he cannot for a moment keep his pen from public matters, nor, on the other hand, can he refrain from declaring that he will apply himself wholly, undividedly, to his literature. Therefore, O my Titus, let me settle down to these glorious occupations, and return to that which, if I had been wise, I never should have left. A day or two afterward, writing from the same place, He asks what Arabarches is saying of him. Arabarches is another name for Pompey, this Arabian chieftain. In the early summer of this year, Cicero returned to Rome, probably in time to see Atticus, who was then about to leave the city for his estates in Epirus. We have a letter written by him to his friend on the journey, telling us that Caesar had made him two distinct offers, evidently with the view of getting rid of him, but in such a manner as would be gratifying to Cicero himself. Caesar asks him to go with him to Gaul as his lieutenant, or, if that will not suit him, to accept a free legation for the sake of paying a vow. This latter was a kind of job by which Roman senators got themselves sent forth on their private travels, with all the appanages of a senator travelling on public business. We have his argument as to both. Elsewhere he objects to a libera legatio as being a job here he only points out that though it enforce his absence from rome at a time disagreeable to him just when his brother quintus would return it would not give him the protection which he needs though he were travelling about the world as a senator on some pretended embassy he would still be open to the attacks of clodius he would necessarily be absent or he would not be in enjoyment of his privilege but by his very absence he would find his position weakened whereas as caesar's appointed lieutenant He need not leave the city at once, and in that position he would be quite safe against all that Clodius or other enemies could do to him. No indictment could be made against a Roman while he was in the employment of the state. It must be remembered, too, on judging of these overtures, that both the one and the other, and indeed all the offers then made to him, were deemed to be highly honourable as Rome then existed. The free legation, the libera legatio vuti causa, had no reference to parties. It was a job, no doubt, and, in the hands of the ordinary Roman aristocrat, likely to be very onerous to the provincials among whom the privileged senator might travel. But it entailed no party adhesion. In this case it was intended only to guarantee the absence of a man who might be troublesome in Rome. The other was the offer of genuine work in which politics were not at all concerned. Such a position was accepted by Quintus, our Cicero's brother, And in performance of the duties which fell to him he incurred terrible danger having been nearly destroyed by the gauls in his winter quarters among the nervii labienus who was caesar's right-hand man in gaul was of the same politics as cicero so much so that when caesar rebelled against the republic labienus true to the republic would no longer fight on caesar's side it was open to cicero without disloyalty to accept the offer made to him but, with an insight into what was coming of which he himself was hardly conscious, he could not bring himself to accept offers which, in themselves, were alluring, but which would seem in future times to have implied on his part an assent to the breaking up of the republic. I dare my troas Peplus. What will be said of me in history by my citizens if I now do simply that which may best suit my own happiness? Had he done so, Pliny and the others would not have spoken of him as they have spoken, and it would not have been worth the while of modern lovers of Caesarism to write books against the one patriot of his age. During the remainder of this year, B.C. 59, Cicero was at Rome, and seems gradually to have become aware that a personal attack was to be made upon him. At the close of a long and remarkable letter written to his brother Quintus in November, he explains the state of his own mind, showing us, who have now before us the future which was hidden from him, how greatly mistaken he was as to the results which were to be expected. He had been telling his brother how nearly Cato had been murdered for calling Pompey in public a dictator. Then he goes on to describe his own condition. "'You may see from this what is the state of the Republic. As far as I am concerned, it seems that friends will not be wanting to defend me. They offer themselves in a wonderful way and promise assistance.' I feel great hope, and still greater spirit, hope which tells me that we shall be victors in the struggle, spirit which bids me fear no casualty in the present state of public affairs. But the matter stands in this way, if he, that is Clodius, should indict me in the court, all Italy would come to my defence, so that I should be acquitted with honour. Should he attack me with open violence, I should have, I think, not only my own party, but the world at large, to stand by me. All men promise me their friends, their clients, their freedmen, their slaves, and even their money. Our old body of aristocrats, Cato, Bibulus, and the makers of fish-ponds generally, are wonderfully warm in my cause. If any of these have heretofore been remiss, now they join our party from sheer hatred of these kings, the Triumvirs. Pompey promises everything, and so does Caesar, whom I only trust so far as I can see them. Even the Triumvirs promise him that he will be safe, but his belief in Pompey's honesty is all but gone. The coming tribunes are my friends. The consuls of next year promise well. He was woefully mistaken. We have excellent praetors, citizens alive to their duty. Domitius, Nigidius, Memmius, and Lentulus are specially trustworthy. The others are good men. You may therefore pluck up your courage and be confident.' from this we perceive that he had already formed the idea that he might perhaps be required to fight for his position as a Roman citizen, and it seems also that he understood the cause of the coming conflict. The intention was that he should be driven out of Rome by personal enmity. Nothing is said in any of these letters of the excuse to be used, though he knew well what that excuse was to be. He was to be charged by the patrician tribune with having put Roman citizens to death in opposition to the law." But there arises at this time no question whether he had or had not been justified in what he, as consul, had done to Lentulus and the others. Would Clodius be able to rouse a mob against him? And if so, would Caesar assist Clodius? Or would Pompey, who still loomed to his eyes as the larger of the two men? He had ever been the friend of Pompey, and Pompey had promised him all manner of assistance, but he knew already that Pompey would turn upon him. That rome should turn upon him rome which he had preserved from the torches of catiline's conspirators that he could not bring himself to believe we must not pass over this long letter to quintus without observing that through it all the evil condition of the younger brother's mind becomes apparent the severity of his administration had given offence his punishments had been cruel his letters had been rash and his language violent in short we gather from the brother's testimony that quintus cicero was very ill fitted to be the civil governor of a province the only work which we have from cicero belonging to this year except his letters is the speech or part of the speech he made for lucius valerius flaccus flaccus had been praetor when cicero was consul and had done good service in the eyes of his superior officers in the matter of the Catiline conspiracy he had then gone to asia as a governor and after the roman manner, had fleeced the province that this was so there is no doubt after his return he was accused was defended by cicero and was acquitted macrobius tells us that cicero by the happiness of a bon mot brought the accused off safely though he was manifestly guilty he adds that cicero took care not to allow the joke to appear in the published edition of his speech there are parts of the speech which have been preserved and are sufficiently amusing even to us. He is very hard upon the Greeks of Asia, the class from which the witnesses against Flaccus were taken. We know here in England that a spaniel, a wife, and a walnut tree may be beaten with advantage. Cicero says that in Asia there is a proverb that a Phrygian may be improved in the same way. Fiat experimentum in corpore vili. It is declared through Asia that you should take a carrion for your experiment. The last of the Mizians is the well-known Asiatic term for the lowest type of humanity. Look through all the comedies, you will find the leading slave is a Lydian. Then he turns to these poor Asiatics and asks them whether any one can be expected to think well of them when such is their own testimony of themselves. He attacks the Jew and speaks of the Jewish religion as a superstition worthy in itself of no consideration. Pompey had spared the gold in the temple of Jerusalem because he thought it wise to respect the religious prejudices of the people, but the gods themselves had shown, by subjecting the Jews to the Romans, how little the gods had regarded these idolatrous worshippers. Such were the arguments used, and they prevailed with the judges, or jury we should rather call them to whom they were addressed. End of chapter 11